0: The Cultured Meat Symposium 2023 is taking place on November 2nd and 3rd, 2023 in Las Vegas. Join us as we discuss topics of product development and manufacturing of cell cultivated meat, poultry, and seafood technology. This year we're doing things a little bit differently, waiving attendee fees and distributing tickets on an application basis. You heard that right. Pre-register for the event to get the latest updates on how you can secure your ticket. Learn more about the event and pre-register at www.cms23.com. Thanks for joining us on the Future Food Show. This episode is part of the Transforming the Future of Protein series, where we explore the work of XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion, a global incentivized competition that challenges innovators to reinvent alternative proteins. On this episode, we're excited to host Dr. Danielle Jameson-McClung. Danielle directs the UC Davis Biotechnology Program, and is the co-founder of the UC Davis Cultivated Meat Consortium. She has over 20 years of experience as a science educator, teaching a variety of courses in biology, plant physiology, genetics, molecular biology, genomics, and bioinformatics at the undergraduate and graduate levels. More recently, she has been advising the XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion competition. On this episode, we chat about UC Davis and their expertise in food and biotech industries, and a tad bit about GMOs, and more. Danielle, I'd like to welcome you to the Future Food Show.
1: Thanks, Alex. Really happy to be here. Danielle, tell us a little
0: bit about your background.
1: So my background's in plant molecular biology and genetics, and I have been at UC Davis for many, many years and was trained as a student as well as doing some lecturing, and now I've been in program administration and teaching for about, well, 15 to 20 years ballpark. So our interest, you know, lately I'm in the biotech program has really reached into this food space. So that's why this is an exciting opportunity for me to talk a little bit about what our students have been up to and our faculty researchers and our cultivated meat consortium, which is now expanding more into alternative proteins.
0: Cool. And I'm excited to dig into each of those things. Maybe tell us what are some of the programs that UC Davis does have? for not just cell ag, but alternative proteins in general? Well,
1: our campus has a long history of being involved in food and agriculture. And we have a number of core facilities on campus that really help us to analyze, you know, the nutrition of foods and components. And our food science programs are very strong. So some of the things I can think of is we have an Innovation Institute for Food and Health. We have a lot of omics core facilities. We have a proteomics facility and a metabolomics core facility that can analyze samples of different foods for their sort of chemical composition. And we also have the USDA Western Health and Nutrition Center on campus, a lot of sensory labs, and a lot of faculty who know about plant biology, plant metabolic engineering, and crop breeding. So we've had a long history of trying to understand foods, how you make them, how you grow the sort of components that go into different types of foods. So this cultivated meat and protein project that we've been working on for a few years now has really drawn on a lot of our campus strengths.
0: One thing that I hear a lot about UC Davis is, I guess, is it viticulture or kind of research on wine? Can you tell us a little bit about those programs? And I'm not sure if your work overlaps with it.
1: Yeah, so my work doesn't really overlap too much, but we have had students who've worked on projects in the viticulture and enology department. The director, the sort of co-director with me of the Cultivated Meat Consortium is David Block, and he's a professor and chair of viticulture and enology. And that particular group is really at the cutting edge of uh, sort of development of new grape varietals and fermentation processes, works really closely with the wine industry in California. So they have a very nice LEED certified, which is a sustainability sort of marker for you know energy efficiency and recycling waters and stuff like that. But they have a very nice pilot facility on campus. It's at our Robert Mondavi Institute's set of buildings that we have on the south end of our campus. And so there's also a pilot brewery over there, and some pilot facilities for looking at milk and processing foods. So we have a lot of those. Kind of core facilities and resources through that program that will help us to dabble into sort of these new food spaces.
0: Very cool. Now, you mentioned the Cultivated Meat Consortium. What is it, and how did it start? Well, back in
1: 2019, it became obvious that we had a couple things happening on campus in parallel. So myself and the biotech program, I was working with our industry partners a lot to Helped do internship placements for our graduate students and a lot of our alumni over the last few years had started going into this industry. So we have alum at Upside Foods and some of the other main companies pushing forward in the cultivated meat space. And we had met Memphis Meats, the previous name of Upside Foods, back in 2015 when they were at the Indie Bio Incubator. So we've been following along kind of on our training workforce development end of things in the biotech program. And at the same time, some of our faculty were starting to do research in this area. So I know Professor Block and Professor Barr and a few others started having graduate students pursuing some research programs. So in 2019, we got together with a bunch of other researchers on campus and talked about forming a consortium, which would be a group of faculty interested in pursuing grants and other types of funding to delve into some of the research challenges in this space and so since then we've been working pretty hard on that we got one of the first grants in the nation federal funding for this topic area from nsf back in 2021 i think it was or maybe 2020 so all the grant writing sort of blurs together in my head but we've been working a lot on both research projects training and outreach and trying to sort of understand all the challenges in this space.
0: I think with almost every conversation about either academic research or even government funding of cellular agriculture, UC Davis comes up and you mentioned the the grant and you mentioned there are multiple grants, but can you tell us about, I think it was the, is it the $10 million that's the national grant? Is that correct?
1: I think that you might be referring to the NSF Convergence grant that we got. I think that one was going to be 4 million dollars in total, and we actually got through two two years of that funding and then had to take a pause. There's a, a kind of a long story behind that, but we've gotten lots of different funding from various sources, including some, you know, cooperative work with industry partners. I think that you may be thinking of there was a USDA grant and some of our faculty are participating on that, but I think the lead institution on that might be might be someplace else I, think
0: I see okay, I, I, yeah. what I'm thinking of, I think maybe it was like Virginia Tech or something like that, and then UC Davis was one of the partners, partners. yeah partners yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, We have a lot of faculty that do that partner across other you know with other lead institutions.
0: I see. Okay. But that's separate from the Cultivated Meat Consortium at UC Davis.
1: Well, the consortium itself is sort of, it's like a loose confederation of, of faculty and students who've come together that want to work on various projects. So for example, right now I'm writing a training grant and not every single member of our consortium is listed in the grant as a faculty trainer or as a co-PI But they'll be welcome to sort of partner if that grant is funded. So what we tend to do is divide and conquer. So some of us will be writing grants that are more training focused. Others will go on to more research focused grants. And then as a collective, we bring this opportunity to campus and then, you know, oftentimes have students funded on, you know, partnered projects and those kinds of things. So I think it's more of a loose structure than than maybe what a company would be thinking of.
0: I see. Okay. And I think that makes a lot of sense because students, oftentimes they have core research, but maybe they could get involved with the consortium on one aspect of their project or another. And I guess same for the professors as well.
1: That's right. Yeah. Everybody has a lot of overlapping interests. So for example, within our consortium, we've got people whose main job on campus is to look at stem cells and tissues for regenerative medicine. So they understand cell growth and, and sort of the scaffolds and structures, biomaterials that would help put together something that looks like meat, but they're looking at it more from a medical perspective. So we have a lot of different expertise that's merged into our consortium from various areas that wouldn't be necessarily food related. So yeah, interdisciplinarity. I think that's, that's sort of the hallmark of UC Davis is we have many of these research projects where You pull expertise from a lot of the other areas on campus.
0: With your background in biotechnology, I wanted to ask you how the landscape has changed over the last few years as it relates to food and agriculture.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was in grad school, my main goal was to make some really awesome GMOs that were going to save people from starving, and they were going to be wonderful for all sorts of places in the world battling parasitic weeds. So I was super hyped about that. And then it became apparent over time that we had some messaging issues, and some possible regulatory issues and some other, you know, societal concerns about using genetic engineering to grow food. And so I ended up doing a lot of science communication in that area. So Over the last, say, 20, 25 years, I've been sort of deeply involved in conversations on genetically engineering plants. And I think it's really interesting that in this food space, you know, clearly people want to sort of stay away from that type of technology because of the consumer perceptions. But there's a lot of the same rationale for doing this. It's to feed people, to make sure their nutrition is good. And how the landscape has changed over the years is there's now different ways to make modifications and, and there's different ways of regulating these things and labeling these things. So when I was a grad student, there wasn't a labeling requirement and now there is. So everything has to be labeled as bioengineered, but that's only transgenics. That's plants that have had genes put in, in a particular mechanism, in a particular way, whereas gene editing, where you're making you know, structurally smaller changes, even though the ultimate trait might be similarly different, are not regulated that way, at least not in the United States. And I think the situation's different all around the world for how, you know, these bioengineering projects are perceived and how they're regulated and labeled. So that's changed a lot. And I think the furor or the kind of controversy around using genetically modified crops has died down a lot over the last 20 years and i attribute that to the advent of gene editing as a mechanism to do that work and also the labeling requirements and deeper conversations with what people expect to know about the food they're eating so i think that's that's a really interesting space that's going to be also an issue for the new foods coming out of you know cultivated meat and all protein companies is people want to know what they're eating, they want to know how is it different from what my ancestors were eating? Can I eat this? Is it going to taste good? Is it affordable? Like there's all of those same questions and I find that really fascinating because some of the some of the feedback from consumers is the same and some is different.
0: I've seen some companies use the label, well, maybe I shouldn't use the term <laughs> label, but they they use on their packaging Proudly GMO. Yeah. Uh, and I always thought that was that was very cool. But I guess from a science communication standpoint, what do you think about that?
1: I think that's good because, you know, that way, if people are opposed to GMOs or just have this feeling that they don't want to have that in their diet, they can easily avoid it, right? Um, but people who are, you know, keen on them, and I would be one of those people will be like, oh, cool. You know, this is proudly GMO and I like it and I'm going to buy it and eat it. So I think you know the market decides a lot on what technologies flourish and which ones go to the wayside.
0: Absolutely, so if you're listening, Proudly GMO, definitely, I guess wear it proudly if, if, if you are interested in picking up products that are Proudly GMO.
1: Yeah, I always was for labeling and for being very transparent because I think people tend to have doubts when they feel like something's being hidden, right? And the more transparent you can be, the better. The issue at that time was that there was so much demonization of the technology from activist groups that it was, you know, just really just like, wow, okay, so the messaging was difficult.
0: (laughs) And I guess that's when the miscommunication is, is coming into play as well.
1: Exactly. I think we have a lot more opportunity nowadays with social media's reach and the kind of science communication that we're training our students to do. So there's a lot less consumer confusion, I think.
0: So we've been hosting the finalists for the X Prize Feed the Next Billion Challenge on the show. And I wanted to ask you how you first got involved with the challenge.
1: Yeah, so I was asked to serve on the advisory board and I, you know, it's just the tangential that I was meeting some of the organizers of the program and they understood my background and my interest in food technologies. And as a program administrator, actually, a lot of the advice I've been giving is more to do with logistics of how you run this kind of contest. But it's really fascinating. And I really love the fact that they're bringing together an ecosystem of entrepreneurs who are really trying to tackle big challenges. And they like to, you know, get together. And I know they don't give away their company secrets to one another, but I think it's a supportive environment. And I know that XPRIZE has been providing some various types of assistance in terms of you know advising to these startups so that they can get to that next level. And even at the ones that have dropped out along the way still have access to a lot of those types of
0: resources, which I think is very cool. I've definitely seen that collaboration that that you're talking about, along with some healthy competition, but definitely kind of like the mindset that everyone is striving towards one goal. And I think that's really that's really cool to see out of a challenge like this.
1: It is. Yeah. This is a small world. Biotech is even a small world. If you look across biopharma and food companies and all the whole shebang, almost everybody knows everybody. There's not that many degrees of separation. And I think even, you know, if you look at the alt protein space or this new food technology space, it's even smaller. So you're going to run across the same folks over and over again throughout your career. And I think it's really good to build those connections and sort of try to put forth a cohesive overall sort of message if you're, you know, having an emerging technology that's coming to market.
0: Outside of even the finalist teams, how do challenges like this spur innovation or even motivate those that are just spectators?
1: I think it's exciting, right? So even our team at the Cultivated Meat Consortium kind of checked into it. We were we were not far enough along to try to you know, put forth an entrepreneurial team like a small startup. But it was it was exciting. It was like, wow, okay, there's gonna be a prize, you know, and that feeds that competitive spirit. A lot of academics and a lot of researchers have that as part of their makeup. And so I think that 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 helps and it brings attention to the space. Like what's the rationale for doing this? Why is this helpful for the world? And I think that XPRIZE articulates that. So it's in the title, Feed the Next Billion. We all know that there's, you know, limited resources on Earth. And if you could be more sustainable in how you manage your food systems, that would be great for the Earth, great for people. And we're still, I think, delving into all of the ways that this sector could be really helpful. But yeah, that's exciting for people to hear,
0: I think. I think you've made me realize also it was almost like a a communication strategy to come up with the challenge to be a whole cut piece of chicken or a whole cut piece of fish, because I think a lot of people, maybe they have a hard time visualizing what chicken that's not chicken or fish that's not fish may be, or they say, well, that's just ground meat products, or maybe that's what they've seen like a burger, but Mm -hmm. perhaps this was a really good way to help those that are not in the industry, maybe not in the food world, help visualize what these alternatives could be too.
1: Yeah, I think so. It's been really fun. Also, this is a a great thing to talk to younger students about. So I do a lot of outreach to high schools, middle schools, and people who are just developing their thoughts on what they want to do in the world to help out and if they want to go into science and be researchers. And I would say that the younger students that I talk to are extremely interested in this space. And a lot of them are you know, kind of animal lovers and interested in ways that we can make our food systems a little bit more kind in general to the world. And and they're interested in climate change and all of those sustainability challenges that we now face. And whenever I speak to these younger gr- audiences, I usually use the UN's sustainable development goals as my framework. And I ask them to look at that you know, there's a bunch of it's a grid of boxes basically but they're very colorful and there's challenges that are facing the entire world that the UN has said these are our challenges and it's 17 boxes and there's you know life life in the water life on earth food you know gender equity there's all sorts of things on this grid but i asked the younger students like take a look at this grid what are the things that call to you what things concern you the most or get you the most excited about participating in and a lot of them are interested in food and, and nutrition and health and wellness. And so this whole research area ties directly into promoting human and animal health, as well as environmental sustainability.
0: How do you see the alternative protein and cellular agriculture field changing in the future? And it could be open-ended how far into the future, whether it's the near future or you know, mm-hmm. 10, 20 years from now. But how do you see it changing from how it is today?
1: I think we don't have that many products on the market today, or or what we do have is sort of imitating traditional foods, right? So it's a new kind of chicken nugget or a new sort of cheeseburger. (laughs) So I think it's really exciting to think about different types of foods that have not been made before, new creations, new combinations of flavors or sensory characteristics or nutritional profiles that might be good for people and I think it's exciting to think about space travel. That's a little bit far out, but I do have colleagues working with NASA, and they're interested in closed systems and how you can make proteins on, you know, in a research environment or an intensive living environment where you don't have access to crops or herds of animals, but what you do have is a bioreactor and maybe some recycled air and recycled water and and maybe some cellular seed bank that you can draw upon. So, that's very spacey and Star Trekky and far out, but if you are going to have a colony on Mars someday, you're going to need different ways of producing food than you know what we're currently doing. So, so that's way way ahead, <laughs> but you know even just more more sooner sooner for us. I think I actually would love to see lots of new foods that don't have allergens in them. I'm actually allergic to eggs and I, I do eat other types of animal products. I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian, but it's really hard for me to find foods that don't have egg mixed in it somehow as a binder or a leavening agent, or you know, there's various reasons why you put egg in food and it's hiding in sauces and breads and all places. So I would love some sort of interesting, I don't know, sauce component or other type of product that has properties similar to an egg but does not have those same proteins that my body finds immune reactive. So those are kind of just a couple examples, but I think there's lots of possibilities of what can be done.
0: I really get excited when I hear about new types of foods and actually Ziliang from Cell X, one of the Feed the Next Billion finalists you know he was he was saying that that is a direction that they're interested in going to as well so i think i think it's cool to think about that and i think it's also a very creative exercise because we're so used to the same type of foods that we're always thinking about or that we're always aware of so thinking about something new is is kind of like it's it's definitely a challenge and so i don't know i think it's interesting
1: yeah, I, I do too. I think that there's just a handful of animal species and a handful of crops that feed the majority of the world the bulk of their nutrients and calories. And that's you know, when you put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, that can be scary too. So my background is ethnically I'm half Irish and my mom was an immigrant and hearing about the Irish potato famine from the time I was a little kid, I was very aware as as a young child that if there's no food, people don't eat, you have famine, and then lots of people die. and Or it forces immigration, and it kind of disrupts an entire culture. So the idea that we're relying so heavily on, you know, sort of the same old, same olds that our ancestors developed thousands of years ago, which does make them pretty reliable overall, I just would like to have some alternatives, right? Having alternatives, I think, is always a good thing. Even if you don't do away totally with all of your traditional sources and forms of of protein, it's going to be really interesting to see what we can come up with that might be sustainable and tasty and delicious and maybe healthier and, yeah, allow us to go to Mars. There's just all sorts of possibilities that I find really exciting.
0: And perhaps also free of allergens, too.
1: And free of allergens. I forgot to add
0: that, yeah. (laughs) So... I've been to actually a really, a very cool event at UC Davis. I think we briefly chatted about it offline. The event that I went to, I think was hosted by the Cultivated Meat Consortium. It was the the in-person summit. Yeah. Can you tell us about any upcoming summits? And I know there's also a short course. Can you tell us a little bit about these programs?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. So. We're really excited to do, for the third year in a row, our short course, which is online, open to anybody in the world who'd like to sign up, and I can share that link with you a little bit later. The summit that you attended last year was the first time we'd done an in-person summit to bring together policymakers, researchers, community members, people from various places throughout the industry to talk a little bit about the challenges, the progress, and sort of the future directions of cultivated meat and alternative proteins. So that was a broader sort of topic that encompassed all of these different forms of alternative meat and proteins. But that was really fun. It was interesting to get people's feedback in an in-person situation where we could network. And a lot of our students was, were able to present their research posters there. So we're gonna do that again this year on September 11th. And I don't have the registration link for that yet, but it's coming soon and I will share it. And then the course follows the September 12th through 15th. And that's a half day online, could be asynchronous course. We share the recordings with our course participants.
0: Cool. And we'll put, of course, the links in the show notes. Is there like a website or a hub or the best way to follow the news from the Cultivated Meat Consortium?
1: Well, I have to say, Alex, we could beef up our social media presence. That is true. We do have a Twitter. (laughs) And I think it's at UC Davis underscore CMC. And I'll share some of those things with you as well. We have a a LinkedIn group. And we just hired a new executive director, Kara Leong. She's a a colleague for many years, and just a wonderful person. And she's going to be ramping up those types of outreach formats over the next few months.
0: Okay, awesome. And I think there's also a newsletter. And I think that's how I get my updates. So we'll put all those links in the show notes if you're listening. As we begin to wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you have any last insights, advice, anything for our listeners, whether they're interested in starting a company, maybe interested in joining a program, any advice you have for our listeners?
1: Well, I would say that, you know, younger students, if you're still coming up through high school and undergraduate training, that you really get the basics down. You still need to know your science, your engineering, have some computational basis if you want to be a researcher in this field. So keep plugging away on those things. I often talk to people who've got a bachelor's degree in a science, but they want to pivot and do more science communication and marketing and working in this industry, more as people who accelerate the business side of things. And I think that, you know, doing an MBA is often a a good idea if you've done a bachelor's in science, but want to get off the bench, as they say. C. Davis has a graduate school of management with courses that include food and ag emphasis. So, So that's always an option. We have our big PhD program. And I think that everyone should just kind of keep their eyes open for new Uh, advances and information coming out of this field. It's moving very fast. This year, just this summer, we had our first regulatory approvals in the U.S. to bring some of these cultivated meat products to market. We've had alternative protein type products coming to market for a number of years, but I think that it's just a very dynamic space. And so I would say, keep your ear to the ground, follow this podcast and all the social media accounts and things that are are going to be keeping you up to speed with research advances.
0: It's definitely a a good time to be joining the industry if if you're not already a part of it. So very well said. Danielle, I would like to thank you for being on the show.
1: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Alex.
0: This is your host, Alex, and we'll see you on the next episode.